I wonder if I was to test you, how many of you would know the words or any of the words to the vows that regularly come up at wedding ceremonies? You've probably all been to them. So, let's test you then. I've got it written down, I'm trying to remember bits of it off the top of my head. What bits get said at the start of the, or not at the start, during, what promises get made during a wedding ceremony? What things get said? Love, honour and obey. Yeah, good. In? And in sickness and in health, do you know what, there was another thing that I thought you'd say, say first straight off. Till death us do part, yeah, I thought another bit would come before all that. For richer or for poorer, I thought there was another bit that would come before that, but you're right. I promise or I vow, good, that bit comes up too. Forsaken all others, very important, this is great, Lauren, you're not married, are you? Something you're not telling us about. There's that other bit as well. What's the other bit I'm thinking of? To have and to hold. That's good, but not what I'm thinking of. To love and cherish is brilliant. That's not what I'm thinking of. Trust on the replay. We've just had that bit. Yeah, that's definitely in there, but that wasn't what I was thinking of. Just a lot. Yeah, you're calling on people. Very important, so it's public. Good. For better or for worse? Have we? Did we? Told you, Bill. That's that's the tricky bit, isn't it? It's a promise. Marriage, a ceremony, is a promise that no matter what happens, I'm going to stick by you. And I mean, if we read it all out, put it all in order, we could have had some fun playing jigsaws with it. At the end of the day, I don't know whether you've realised this, marriage is a contract. It's a deal. I've called upon these persons here present and I'm making a contract. In fact, we use the old-fashioned word, the word in the Bible, a covenant, a deal, an ironclad promise. I state myself, my reputation, my very life on keeping this promise. Now, in this, quite often we don't think in those terms, do we? You know, marriage is the most intimate of human relationships. It's a, long, it's a beautiful, long-term, lifelong partnership. That's what it's supposed to be. And when it breaks down, that's why it's so painful, because it just tears you apart. But the only reason you can have that beauty, that intimacy, that, that strength of relationship, is because it is bound together beforehand in a contract, where people say, so help me God, I will be faithful. You don't get the intimacy. You don't get the shared life, the shared hopes, the shared vision, unless you know that person's with you. You can't open up. You know, it'd be like shields down and opening yourself up to people who are just going to abuse you. You need the safety of the contract to allow you to step out in faith and trust somebody else. Because it's making yourself vulnerable and it's a scary thing. So what is marriage? Well, it's public commitment. I will have and hold you. It's identity changing. You see, when you get married, you're not quite the same person, are you, as you were before. So before I got married, I used to think of a single fella, and a single, uh, a single fella thinks like, leave your socks on the floor and that's okay. Uh, t- turn up back at home at whatever time you jolly well please. Um, but actually, when you get married, it changes your identity so that now you have to think not just for yourself and what you want, but what the other person in the relationship wants. It's even more identity changing if you're a lady, because quite often you'll make, even make a change to your name, won't you? To say, this is who I am now with, and this is who I now am. So marriage is a public commitment, it's an identity changing thing, but it's also 
life-shaping, so intimate and personal is the relationship, so that if you are at a point where you're in a good marriage, it becomes a point of strength to go out into the world. You know, you can have mess all around you, but you've got that relationship as an anchor, and you can move out, and you're strong. But the opposite's true as well. If you're finding things difficult in your marriage, and it's a struggle, it's as if a, sh- a cloud descends, not just on that part of your life, but the whole of life. If that bit of your life isn't quite working, so central is marriage to who you are, it's got the power both to really strengthen, but also just to break you as well. It's a horrible thing when that happens. So marriage is about as intimate as it gets. So why are you telling us about marriage, Steve? Aren't we going on a Bible overview? Well, I think it's important that we realise this, that the Bible has many ways that God talks about how he wants to relate to his people. And we've seen some of them, haven't we? We've seen that he is the king, the ruler of his kingdom, who loves to lavish gifts on his, uh, on his subjects. We've seen, and sorry, we're going to see, through, as we move through the Bible, he describes himself as a shepherd, who gently leads and cares for his people. But also within the Bible, we find that God is like a husband who loves his wife, who forms a new intimate relationship with his people. He is present there with them. Which immediately means we have to stop and think. Is that how you relate to God? He's not a nowhere man in nowhere world out beyond the Andromeda galaxy, not according to the Bible. He calls us into a close, personal relationship, one that is so close that it puts earthly marriage to shame. Perhaps you've heard of his rescue, and you think, brilliant, that's good. In fact, I was a little bit like that for a while, when I first came to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I knew I wanted to be in his gang, but a lot of it was, well, trust in Jesus, and he will rescue you from hell and deliver you to heaven. I thought that will do. So in many ways... Knowing God was like my ticket out of difficulty. It wasn't until I grew and started reading his Bible a little bit that I understood that it wasn't just that he was saving me, he was calling me into a relationship with him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the point? What is the point of that rescue? Answer, to go back? No. To be like you were? No. But to come into a relationship, a covenant contract publicly um, shown with the Lord God of heaven and earth. That's what it means to be in relationship with him. So remember where it all started. You can see it there on your handout, you see? Taking the picture there, do you remember? Look at the little picture on the front. It all started with the tree, with the two little people, Adam and Eve, and they were in perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship, intimate, depended on him for everything. And then we found in the second week that all that got broken. And all the brokenness in our lives and in the world can be traced that day when we break relationship with God. We saw how it descended into um, chaos and mayhem. We saw, saw the flood with the Noah's Ark there. We saw the Tower of Babel where people broke away and distanced themselves from God. And it wasn't until things had hit rock bottom, not when somebody says, hey God, you just fix stuff. And while we were in a mess, God shouted out to a guy called Abraham and said, look, you low life." I just can't help myself. I've got to try and rescue you out of the brokenness. And he made him three promises. He said, Abraham, go. We saw this last week. Go, leave this land, and go to a land I will give you. 
Be my people, I will make a great nation of you, and I will rule you, and through you there will be blessing to you and the nations beyond. Do you remember that? And so we started to see, last week, we started moving up. Abraham and his no good son, Isaac and his no good son, Jacob, and despite their unfaithfulness and refusing to believe the promises, God was still with them. And in fact, you can see, he took them into, well, they were in Egypt, and God mightily rescued them out of the land of Egypt in what we call the Exodus. He did it by great acts of judgment against Pharaoh who wouldn't trust and believe that the Lord was the Lord. And he brought the people out. So if you like, what at that point where, right, God rescued them. He's rescued them. What now? So they're a great nation, but are they his people under his blessing rule? They're a great nation, but are they in his land? Well, today that's what we're going to look at as the, the progressing kingdom. We're going to see, so you can turn over, how God has got people in relationship with him and how they enjoy his blessing and rule and how they come into God's promised land. Okay, now I've made a mistake straight off the bat. You can see there at the top, you know it says Genesis 12, verses 1 to 6? That's wrong. It's Exodus chapter 19, verse 3 through to 8. And if you've got a pen, write it in. And if you've got a Bible, turn it up. So we're in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through to 8. So they've been rescued, remember this? They've been rescued, oh, and they've been grumbling along the way. Honestly, they're just like us. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So remember, I judged Egypt, and liberated you out of that judgment. I saved you. I've rescued you. You did nothing. I did it for you because I love you. Verse 5. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenants, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answers back to the Lord. You see what's happened there? God had made a public commitment to his people that I will be your God, you be my people. I call on these people, here present. You will be my child of all the nations of the earth. You, you, will be my precious people. It's an identity change. He says that they're going to have a particular role and responsibility in the way that the relationship works. They're going to be priests, a holy nation. In other words, they're going to be a means of blessing out to the rest of the world. And it will be life-shaping. They are, if you like, to shine out to those nations. It means that when you come near to God and get close to him and you're his treasured possession, you will become like him and show everybody else around you his strength, his mercy, his grace, his goodness. So this is the point I want you to get from this bit. Are you ready? The purpose of redemption and rescue is relationship. Have you 
Have you forgotten that in your Christian life? The reason God saves you is because he wants to draw near you. He wants the relationship that he has with you to be the defining relationship. Bigger than you and your fella. Bigger than you and your missus. Bigger than you and your kids. So often, that's the thing, isn't it? Well, I can't always control my father or my missus, but I can control my kids, so I'll make that the defining relationship on which I get my hope and joy from. And that's not a bad thing to have a good, strong relationship with your kids, but if you try to make that the relationship that defines who you are as a person, it will break that relationship because that relationship was never supposed to have that much weight on it. You were made to be built with God as your central relationship and all of the other relationships gaining strength because you're right with God first. And that's what he said to this nation. So we can see here how he does it. Great rescue and redemption that has come out of great acts of judgments. And if you're a Christian, you know that Jesus Christ has rescued us by taking the judgment upon himself so that we can be brought near to him for a restored relationship with him. You can see that there on the notes. You see that? And as that was the pattern with Old Testament Israel, as a foretaste, the bigger, real pattern is happening with God and his church now. But he rescues us out of judgment to bring him to himself for a special relationship that lasts all through eternity. Those are who his people are. So let me ask you, have you stopped too soon? I was saved back in 1947, the 7th of June. And all you can do is look back to that date. Now, that's great to look back to that date. But he's talking about relationship with you today. Today. Are you building that relationship with him? He's not just a ticket out of hell. He is... He's the God of grace who calls you to it. You know, some churches, they have altar calls, don't they? You know, and if you... you and I, I, I'm not totally against altar calls, but the problem with an altar call, which is where you call people up, if, if you want to make a commitment to the Lord today, come, and people do it, and very sincerely, and I think it's great, and sometimes it's going to be a great mean of blessing, but I've met too many people who, when I speak to them and say, how are you going on as a Christian? They look at me in a funny way, and I say, well, you are a Christian. Well, back in 1972, I got saved. But what about today? What are going up for an altar call if you're not living in your faith today? He calls people to himself for a relationship with him today. So let's look at how he does that with these people. He's called them to him, and then he starts to make the... And he starts to show what that actually looks like and how to shape that relationship. So moving on to the next point now, <coughs> excuse me, which is enjoying God's blessing and rule, I suppose, how we enjoy God's re- relationship with God. And it splits into two bits. With this new nation, he's called them, he's saying, right, what does it look like to be in relationship? Now you and me, we're pretty slow on the uptake, we need some help with this, don't we? Be in relationship with God, well what does it look like? So, two aspects. He gives a law of promise, and he is the God of presence. The law of promise and the God of presence. Right, in in Exodus chapter 20, if you look at the top, what's that entitled? Ten Commandments. Oh dear, we were going well until we got here, Steve. We don't like it, in fact he calls it the law. It's the law. We like law, 
We like law when it's protecting us, don't we? But when, it's, when we've got to measure up to it, we don't like law. Law, bad. Freedom, good. This is supposed to be the law that brings freedom. That brings perfect freedom. Well, how does that look? Well, there's a few things that you need to notice. Look, this is really important. First of all, God gives his law, the Ten Commandments and the Covenant Code, to his people after they've been rescued. Get that? Rescue first, then he gives the law. He doesn't say, obey my laws and I will rescue you. That's religion. That's not what God does. God does, I rescue you freely by grace. Now, as I call you into relationship, here are some laws that show what it looks like to live in relationship with me. So this is the opposite of the world, where it says, wherever else you go, you will find you're being asked to tick a box or live up to a standard. If you want to be in the team and you want to have your name there, you have to keep the rules if you want to be part of the community. God says, no, I bring you into the community, then I show you what it looks like to live in the community. Now, why is this important? Oh, well, let me have a think. No, actually, I'll come back to why that's really important in a second. The second thing here is we find out that it's a framework of relationship, a framework for a relationship of faith. Now, up to this point, anybody who's moved anywhere with this faith, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, they've, re- they've been kept in relationship, not by being obedient, because they're a bunch of losers and wasters, weren't they? They've been kept in the relationship with God by trusting his promise. Now, although we call them the Ten Commandments, it doesn't actually say that there. In fact, the Israelites used to call them the Ten Words. What they basically are is Ten Promises. So when you first read them, you go, oh, have I kept that, have I kept that, have I kept that? It's not how God wants you to read them. He means you to look at them and say, have you trusted that? Have you trusted that? Have you trusted that? What do I mean? I'll show you. Look. Each one of them is a promise. So let's pick the first one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment one, have no other gods. That's a promise. That's God saying, I am all you need to build your life upon. Don't go chasing another little petty deity. Don't go saying, if I get that, then my life will be robust and strong. Don't believe what those things promise you. Believe that I am all you need when I say that I am all you need. And any time you do go pursuing another God, it's because you haven't believed that I'm a good enough God. So for anybody who has ever said that rushed off there another God, for anybody who's rushed after another God, it's simply because they haven't trusted that God is the right God. Have I number 10? Flip over to number 10. Oh, sorry, it's at the bottom, number 17. You shall not cover your neighbour's house. That's a promise. God is saying, I am sufficient. The thing that it will be, if you get who I am and being in a relationship with me, I am all you need. If I'm with you, then you've got everything. You don't need a fat piece plasma. You don't need a Ferrari. You do not need a wife who looks like a supermodel. You do not need to have the best job. You want them. But every time you want them and you pursue them and you go after them, when you cover them, it's because you don't believe my promise that I'm all you need and I will supply your need. 
I will be present with you and I will satisfy you. No, because we too busy believe in the promise that if we get those things we'll be satisfied. So obedience, obeying those things, is the same as faith. It's faith in action. How do I know that you believe God is the only God and sufficient? It will be shown in your actions that you don't pursue other gods. How do I know that you and me, we really do believe that God is all-satisfying? We're going to tell it in your actions. You won't cover us. So do you see what's going on here? Now why is this important? Because often I speak to people who've been believers perhaps for a while, and this is what they've been taught. You become a believer by trusting in Jesus, i.e. by faith. You stay a believer by being obedient and keeping the law and not messing up. And if you do mess up, you'll fall out of God's promises. So they're saying, um, saved by grace, kept by working hard. No, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel back in the Old Testament. The gospel here is, you believe God's promises to rescue you, and you go on believing God's promise as shown by your keeping of the Lord. Do you see that? When you obey, it's because you believe the promise, not because you're trying to get yourself in. Do you see the difference there? We are, from first to last, people of faith. That's the way we connect to God. It's never by obedience. Because if it was, we'd be stuffed. Because all our collective obedience put together, all yours, all mine, which isn't very much, all of it bottled up, is useless. We need one who's perfectly righteous. And Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He's the one who was obedient. As we get to this, we'll see how he obeyed perfectly for us. Listen, being a Christian is from faith all the way through. There's no... You get the idea. Right. That's why that's important. I'll be even quicker on the next one. So, what is the Lord's framework of relationship of faith? It shows you what faith looks like. I'll come back to that in a minute. Right. Uh, What does the Lord also do? It shows you what God looks like. Moses was dead proud of the law because he compared what was in these Ten Commandments and the, the, the unpacking of them over the next four chapters. And he said, look at these compared with the rules and the laws of the other nations around us. Look at them and the backbiting and the stabbing. All of those laws are, are stacked in, um, in favour of people who've already got power. It keeps the little man the little man. But if you look at the laws of our God, it's about grace. It's about freedom. It's about liberty. It's about being fully human and everybody having opportunity. It's about justice and righteousness. Why? Because that's what our God is like. Any other God, any other God is capricious and cruel. When you fail any other God, they will punish you. And when you go to any other God for comfort, they will never satisfy. But Moses looked at the law of our God and said, I couldn't even come up with a God as good as this. So perfect, so gracious, so kind, so always just wonderful. And so keep that law, you people of faith, so that the people around can see how wonderful is our God. This is the marriage contract. This is what it looks like to be in relationship with him. We trust him, we honour him, we depend on him, we find our hope in him and in him alone. And that's what the Israelites were called to do. And that's what, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're called to do. In slightly different ways, we'll get to that when we move forward. But also, if he's promised, he's given his law of promise, he, is show, he shows himself, now that was, I know this sounds odd, that was in 
That's Exodus 23 to 25. Now we're going to try and do the rest of Exodus um, and Leviticus and part of Numbers in, under one point. Here we go. And I'm summarising it by the God of pres- Presence. Can you see there on your little thing, you've got a picture of a, a marquee that lost its roof. Can you see that? And then a quote from Exodus chapter 29, verse 46, I think. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now he instructed Moses um, to build a whopping great tabernacle, a bit like a marquee with no roof. And as you can see, there's like three areas. There's like the outer court and priests can go in there. And there's that other thing, which is the holy place. And then inside that, that's split into two. And at the back, behind a whopping great thick curtain, is a place called the holy place. And in that holy place, if you like the inner sanctum, there was put an ark. Now, I'll test you. What does the word ark mean? I told you this about two or three weeks ago. Ark means... It doesn't mean boats. It means... Spot on. Somebody was listening. It means chest. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. Who's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Of course you have, you bunch of liars. You've all seen it. Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's that. The Lost Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. In there were kept the stones on which the Ten Commandments were written. If you like, the deal between God and his people. And he would put that, that tent would be put in the middle of the camp of God's people. So he was right at the heart and right at the middle. He was present with them, but he wasn't. Because you couldn't get near him because of all the... He was there, but he was... fenced off. Why? Well, it was because of the sin. What would it take? Imagine if God turned up here in our congregation. What would happen? Wouldn't we walk up to him and slap him on the back and give him a big kiss and say, Hi, mate. Think about anybody in the Bible who has come face to face with God. So the so-called holy people, not that they were a bunch of wasters, just like us. Do you remember what happened to them? It was round about 0.24 seconds before their face was planted firmly in the dirt in terror. Because God is a consuming fire. And people like you and me don't mess with God. For him, he just, he can't help himself. He just vaporizes wickedness. He just blows it to smithereens. I mean, you know what it's like. You go, go to a place which has got a really hot bombing. You, I mean, even on bombing night around here, you, the kids know to keep back. You go there, you get vaporised. God is like a holy fire that will consume wickedness and sin. He just he squishes it. And so he's in the tent of people who have, who have broken the covenant again and again and again. They've broken their marriage vows. They trust it's like believing in another God that could talk you through all the stupid things the way they doubt again and again and again. And so there's this tent that's sort of, he's there with them, but he has to be fenced off. And it's only a, it's teach them a lesson, it's not like a bit of cloth can keep you from God's fire. He's set this thing up to teach them that the only way they're ever going to get near enough to God is if their sin is properly, properly dealt with. And the high point of that comes on the Day of Atonement. That's in Leviticus chapter 16. And the sacrificial system is set up there that happens in the tabernacle and the priests carry it out. And they were given this. This wasn't their idea. This was what God gave them to teach them that sin keeps God's presence away from people. So sacrifices are offered in the tabernacle every day for the sin of the people. 
So their sacrifice almost symbolises the sacrifice dies in their place so they don't have to. Everybody knew back then that the blood of a bull or a goat doesn't take away sin. It was preparing them for when it would ultimately be done. We'll come back in a minute. So the high point was the Day of Atonement. Uh, it was the calendar. It's sort of like for us, Christmas is the big high point of the year, isn't it? For them, it was the Day of Atonement. But it wasn't like they sat around the Christmas tree. They basically waded in ankle deep in blood. Uh, the high point, the high moment of the day came where the high priest takes hold of two goats. Now, goat number one has its throat slit, the blood is collected, and the high priest, very nervously, with his rope around his leg in case he drops dead from going in there, tiptoes, sweating, into, into the holy place, into the most holy place, and hopes that he doesn't get vaporised, as what he does is he tips a bit of blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's his way of saying, we have broken our deal with you, God, and we deserve to be punished by death. Our blood should run, and yet someone else's blood has run to fix the brokenness between us. And of course, it's from that little goat. Goat number two, have you ever ever heard the phrase scapegoat? That's from here, so it's 16. The other goat is the scapegoat. What happens is the, uh, the high priest would put his hands on the goats and confess the sins of unfaithfulness of the people and his own sins and the sin of his family and he would almost symbolically say we're transferring them to this scapegoat and then the, the, the goat would basically be sent off out of the wilderness which was a desert and a place of death the sin would be carried outside the camp and carried away. So you've got the two pictures of this goat blood paying and, and, and writing the covenant but the, the sin being carried far away and already some of you are thinking about this thing here what we're going to share in a minute where the Lord Jesus talks about his blood spilled for a better covenant so that he would pay for our sin, the sins of our unfaithfulness before God the Lord Jesus carried a cross where did he carry it to? outside the city of Jerusalem to a barren place where he carried our sins away. What was God teaching them as he set up that whopping great Mark 10 thing? Answer. You can only have God near you when your sin is dealt with. You can't deal with it without dying yourself. So he would raise up a way that our sin could be taken from us. And that's the Lord Jesus. So it all sounds an awful lot, doesn't it? It all sounds a bit primitive and barbaric. And God meant it that way. He had to tell you that sin is serious and it kills. You know that. Sin, brokenness, disobedience, failure to trust God always kills. Sin makes people's lives fall apart, which is death, isn't it? And some of you know it. Some of you at times when you've run away from God, making choices you knew you shouldn't have done, and you almost ended up surprised at the end when your life had fallen apart because of it. Sin and running from God kills, breaks, makes a bloody mess. And so that the people of Israel would never forget it, and so that we would never forget it. It dawned on me just a few, it was only a few weeks ago, knowing what I know now, if I was standing at the foot of the cross where Jesus died, I would probably be screaming at him, don't do it. Don't put yourself through that. That bloody mess for me. You're worth more than that, Lord. 
Don't you dare go and give your life for me or the life of the church family. You're worth so much more. And yet his body was broken and his blood ran so that you and I could have presence with God. Do you stop and let that take? Do you stop and consider that? He was the bloody mess. So we don't have to be. It's so important to him that he has relationship with us. So the lesson here is that sin is wicked and horrible and the only way it will ever get dealt with is if there were to be the ultimate Lamb of God, the ultimate priest, the ultimate substitution in death and that is what we're told comes later in the Bible. So I wonder whether you've let this all change your thinking. His greatest provision is himself. You know, sometimes we're those kind of people we just we don't want God. Shocking, isn't it, after the fact that he's been willing to do it? We don't want God. What we want is a God who gives us what we want. God, I want that, and I want that. That's what religion's about, isn't it? I'll, be, I'll behave and be good. You give me this. Um, I'll behave. Uh, you'll give me the person I want in my life. Uh, you'll give me the job I want in my life, and you'll make sure I don't get cancelled until I'm 95. That's the deal. That's singularly short-sighted, isn't it? It's bonkers. You want all that good stuff from God when you can have God, the author of life, who's better than the best job, the best partner, and the best health. You can have God. The most important thing that we have when we get together here on a Sunday is God with us. And the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't he, when he was up another mountain, when he was on another mountain, he said, listen, you are my people. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to uh, believe all that I've taught you, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am... We were Pentecostal, would be swinging from the chandeliers. Have you missed that promise at the end? He can be with us now. Because he died and rose again. We can have God with us. I say this to you sometimes, you look at me, when I sit next to a stranger on the, on the train, like I did this week on the way back from London, it's good news! Because Jesus is with me. That person wasn't expecting that when she sat down. Oh no, she just wanted to play Sudoku. And then somebody full of Jesus sits next to her, and who knows what could happen there. Listen, don't get stuff from God. He's gracious and he gives it. But if that's your highest aim, you're an idiot. So I've got you. And if I've got you, you're all I need. But of course, if they're going to have a marriage together with God's law and promise shaping it, and God's presence with them through sacrifice, meaning he can be with his people, well, what do you need when you've had a marriage? You need a pastor. You need a place to live. And that's very quickly, because we're running shy of time, we'll move on to that. God's place uh, takes us from Numbers through to the end of Judges, and I've got to go very speedy on this. You can see this here. Let's have a look. Yeah, I'm going to try and do this in less than five minutes. Right, here we go. Right, just remember, since, since the Lord rescued them out of Egypt, he's been guiding them. Remember a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night? He's been leading them. They've been through the desert. They've had this quick detour to Mount Sinai, where he's, um, uh, where he's called them to be his people. And now he leads them directly on to the promised land. And you can see the little map there. 
So if you're looking at the little map, follow the red down to Mount Sinai at the bottom, up a bit, and they loop up to a place called Kadesh. Can you see that? Kadesh Barnea. If you like, it's the gateway to the promised land, and it is described as the land flowing with milk and honey. So that fell flat because you love that it's Morrison's on the estate. Okay, so put it this way. It's the land flowing with, is it beluga or beluga? Caviar. What is it? Kosh. What is it? Help me. Carol, you'll know that caviar, won't you? Is it beluga caviar and moe champagne? You know, all the better Bollinger. Oh, it's got, it, it's just flowing out. You know, from, if I was, it's like a, a, like a Mackey's milkshake dispenser on each street corner. Brilliant. Exactly what I'm after. It's, what's he saying? He's saying it's a place where everything is in abundance. You haven't made it for yourself. God has lavished it upon you. It is, it's the bling lifestyle. And God has given it to them. So there they are, they stand on the edge. There's the whole nation, about 600 odd thousand of them. Surely nothing can go wrong at this point. But the same thing goes wrong as always goes wrong. When God promises, they don't believe. So they send 12 leaders into the lands. We call them spies, they're actually leaders. And they all see the beauty. But 10 of them, 10 of them look out and they see, we've done four, they see the army, they see the swords, they see the bows and arrows, they see the strongholds of the seven or eight nations in the land, and they say, we can't do this. Are they right or are they wrong? They're right, aren't they? But it was never the promise that they would have to get the land, it was the promise of God that I will give you the land. He would win the battle for them. Only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they say, don't be that. The Lord can win this. They're like a buzzer that flies to him. You know, he cuts them kind of bows and arrows against God. He's just like shifted the sea and battered Pharaoh and forced He's saying, bread from heaven, what are you worried about? But yet again, they will not trust in God. And when God is that powerful, and when God is that gracious, and God is that merciful, when God has promised it to his people, and they say, I don't believe you, that is like a slap in the face with a wet kipper to the Lord God. It's like about as dishonouring and insulting as it could be. It's nuts. I mean, it's, I mean you think about the times you hate it, don't you, when somebody sort of suggests you can't really do that, can you? It's like when I sit there, harumphing at the way my wife is driving, she just gets angry. What's wrong with my driving? Yeah, we just take it personally. This is God saying, what's wrong with my salvation? I can do it. You don't believe me. You think I'm rubbish. And in that moment, they forfeit their lives in a total waste. He gives them what they ask for. He says, you're, they say, you're not big enough to deal with our, promise, uh, deal with our needs. You're, you're, or the need has outstripped your ability to supply. And so God gives them what they say. It's okay, I'll let you do it then. And the result is that the whole generation that was 20 years old or older die in the desert and they wander for 40 years. He gives them what they ask for because he cannot, he will not allow people to say, you can't do it, Lord. He, if he lets them have it, they'll think that they've done it. No. 
He won't stand people robbing and stealing his glory, and neither should he, because it breaks lives and it dishonours him and his grace. So the whole generation wanders. In Deuteronomy, they wander up to the end of that red line at the top bowing Mount Nebo where Moses dies. And the old generation has died out. There's this new generation, so they do Deuteronomy. Does anybody know what Deuteronomy means? Deuteronomy? Deute means two. Ronomy is law. The second law it means. Basically, he reruns the Ten Commandments and said, your relatives, bunch of wasters, I'm making this deal with you now, this new generation. Will you take my promised land, please? Will you trust me? And the big emphasis through that is he says again, remember, remember what I've done for the previous generation. You lose sight of that and you'll stop trusting me. He says, be careful. Be careful how you respond to everything. Will you respond in faith and hope? And will you trust my promises? Remember, be careful. Trust him and build your lives on his grace and you'll have abundance. But if you're unfaithful, he will not let you believe other things or other gods can save you because he's a jealous God. We're in a public commitment together, you know. So after Deuteronomy, Joshua is raised up as the new leader. But it's God who takes them into the land. And with an inferior force, he battles them. You know, he battles, flattens, remember, he flattens Jericho with a trumpet. Remember that? Oh, it's, it's great to watch. And at every turn, the people refuse to trust God as they should do. They won't drive all the inhabitants of the land out, as they told. God still keeps on fighting for them. Whenever they're faithful, they get abundance. Whenever they don't believe his promises, they just don't enjoy them. It's as simple as that. Until we get to that thing we had read a few minutes ago, which is in Joshua 21. So flip forward to Joshua 21. See, it's right at the end of the chapter, verse 43. They're now in the, in the land. They've not taken possession of it as they should. They've, they were too scared to take on some of the people. And so those people stayed in. They're going to be a thorn in their side for the next few centuries. But Joshua 21, verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies stood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. There's the evidence, there's the testimony. There's the faithful God. He didn't let the side down. He always did what he said he would do, and more besides. God did everything. And yet the same old problem comes back. We're going to need an answer to this problem, aren't we? The fact of the people's unfaithfulness. In fact, the book of Judges, if you click over three pages, you'll see this. In the book of Judges, we see a cycle of what happens. <coughs> Excuse me. And if you've got a pen, you can fill in those little boxes there. The whole of the book of Judges is this same problem. So let's start at uh, Judges chapter 2, and verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who, lived, uh, who outlived him, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But you can sense the but is coming, can't you? Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Perez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Geash. 
But after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Had they listened to Deuteronomy? Had they remembered? Had they been careful? And Deuteronomy saw that teach the next generation what the Lord has done for they will know him and his presence with them. But they forgot. And they, verse 12, they forsook the Lord, which meant they turned to trust other gods. The God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baals and Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them. Imagine how much that must pain God to stand against his own people. He hates that. He hates it. In fact, later in the Bible, to his people, when they're being divvied, he shouts at them, Turn! Turn! Why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Stop being in! Stop running from me! Come back! They were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of their hands of the, the raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. And unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from their way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's command. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following the gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. So we see this cycle. The new generation of Israel at the top, they turn away from trusting and serving the Lord, so they're worse than even the nations around them. And God says, no, no, that's not faith. So he brings judgment upon them. God judges them. And then what happens is, the Israelites realise they've run their own way, it's wrecked their lives, they're being overrun by their enemies, God's good hand is away from them, so they wake up and say, quick Lord, have mercy, please. They turn back to him in repentance. And then when that happens, everything goes quite well, because God raises up a judge. A judge is not like somebody who sits with a, sits with a wig, more like a saviour, a rescuer, the likes of Gideon or Samson or um, Deborah, those kind. He'll raise them up, and he'll do a great act of we rescue through that judge and everything will be fine until that judge dies and then the people live in peace and prosperity and they sin again. That goes back seven times in the book of Judges. Keeps going around and you're like, Lord, is this how it's going to be forever? The fickleness of the people dishonouring your name and turning away from you? It's horrible. And the book of Judges closes on one of the most dreary and sad verses of the Bible. We turn to the very back. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And in those days, so it's on page 187, very last sentence. And in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Can you think of a better Bible verse for our generation, this generation in the UK in 2011? 
all the singers are sort of singing about how they want freedom, all the preachers of the day, which are the, pretty much the music videos, they're saying, we want freedom, we want freedom, we want a bit of do what we jolly well please. But they don't seem to understand that there's no such thing as freedom. If you want to enjoy a marriage relationship, if you want to have freedom and joy and security and ease and peace within a marriage relationship, there's certain things you ain't free to do. Because if you do them, you lose that better freedom. You lose your humanity. So if me and Jane and one of the two of us go carrying on with somebody else, we're free to do that in one sense, but we're stupid too because if I do what's right in my own eyes, I break the real freedom of a wonderful loving relationship. Do you see that? And the Lord lets us run and do what we like in our own eyes, and we think that there are no consequences, and we think that we're free, but we just end up being more broken. You see, the safest place for you and me to be in is in a covenant contract relationship where God has rescued us and goes on providing for us as we trust in his good promises. As we say, he's the one I want to build my life on. And as we go into that, we realise we fail again and again and again. We realise that our only hope for that going on is through the fount of forgiveness and grace and mercy that flows from the Lord Jesus and his cross. For there, the faithful son, the faithful husband, dies to rescue the unfaithful partner and bring us into a relationship of perfect freedom. Let's pray Lord, we end on this low note, which is where you want us to end, and leave us sensing the fact that our only hope of being right with you will be if you intervene again. And we thank you that we will not have to wait long, for soon the Lord Jesus will come, and he will be the king that they need. And he will be the priest who offers a better sacrifice. And he will be our temple and tabernacle where we can know you. And he will tear down the curtain that divides your presence from your people. And he will say, Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. And for that, Lord, we thank you. We praise you, O Lord, for being faithful to us, even when we break our end of the bargain. Make us people of faith, who show our faith by active obedience, who commit to you publicly, who show your glory to the nations, and who just love to sing your praise. Help us in this, we ask. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. we a table service here, but I certainly don't want to rush through, but I realise that we've moved on in time here.